0: This is the Windswept and Interesting podcast and I'm Richard Baines. Today I'm in the Cairngorm National Park to talk to a man with one of the biggest jobs in conservation, that is, running the vast National Trust for Scotland estate at Mar Lodge. If you've been to the Braemar side of the Cairngorms, you'll have surely been through his manor, which includes woodland, moorland and most of Scotland's highest mountains. If you like this chat, by the way, you can subscribe to the podcast and I'd love to hear your views on it and suggestions for future episodes. Have a look for my handle, at scottnaturecore, on Twitter and send me a note. So, David Frew is the subject of the day and as we sit in the spring sunshine overlooking the River Dee near Mar Lodge itself, he's going to tell us, first of all, what he does and what he's done before. On a day-to-day
1: basis, my job is to, to look after this fabulous 72,000 acre chunk of the Cairngorms uh, which is a privilege uh, to be honest. Prior to that I um, worked for Nature Scott out on the Isle of Rum and the Isle of Rum Community Trust and before that was also in the Cairngorms working for the ski area for Cairngorm Mountains. So a very varied career path but um, I've ended up in this fantastic location being able to do great things for, for nature and for people and for um, yeah, it's a really
0: exciting, role. So after you leave places, they become controversial. <laughs> Kin- Kin- Kinlock Castle on Rum <laughs> yes. is now quite controversial because nobody can get to buy it. And Cairngorm Mountain has been controversial for a little while <laughs> yeah. because of the of the failings of the funicular. Is that your fault?
1: I, I, well, I'd hope not. No, but it, I, I do seem to be attracted to controversies. And actually, when I came here to Mar Lodge Estate. Um, there was a lot of controversy controversy around Mar Lodge at the time, um, particularly around deer management and, and woodland establishment. So, um, yeah, I do seem to end up in these situations.
0: But, um, <laughs> We've got a, a Robin giving voice to us quite close We might have to shear him away in a minute, although that's quite difficult with Robin. <laughs> but, but tell me, first of all, t- tell me about the estate, because people have probably heard of Mar Lodge estate, but it's a vast, vast area that takes in some of our... Most important hills.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, about seventy-two thousand acres uh, in total, right in the heart of the Cairngorms, and it includes a significant part of the Cairngorm plateau. Um, so most people know that Ben Nevis is the highest mountain in Scotland, but the next four highest are all here on on Mar Lodge Estate. So we've got Ben mcdwee Braeriach, Cairn Toul. Um, Angel's Peak, Devil's Point um, all, all these sort of big hills um, so yeah a really important significant part of the the central Cairngorms and visited by 100,000 visitors a year plus walkers, climbers, people just coming to, to enjoy the scenery um so yeah it, it's really busy really important for conservation as well it has the the largest remaining fragment of of ancient Caledonian pine wood in Scotland so um that's obviously a, a big part of our work here to try and, and save that and restore
0: it and see it expand a lot of the things that are quite a big deal there you've got the you've got the longest lasting snow patch on your patch we I think we, you? We, the we do, yeah
1: the sphinx uh, is also in Mar Lodge, yeah, up in core in Bray-Riech. So, um, yep, and uh, lots of people go uh, People seem fascinated by these sorts of things, you know, records, things that last a long time. But from where we're sitting um, just now, it's a long way to get there. It's a long, long walk in. Um, but, yeah, right through the the centre of the Larigrew, it cuts through the, the heart of the Cairngorms, really. Um, most of the Larry grew is on also on marlodge Mar estate. The
0: snow patch is just a, a signifier of the fact that it's probably the biggest area of alpine ground, the biggest area of long lasting snow
1: yes, it is and um you know that that habitat up on the top of the plateau is unique in the u k It doesn't exist anywhere else um it is changing um the f- effects of climate change we're seeing we're definitely seeing here in Mar marlodge and the the snow patches aren't lasting as long as they used to that's that, that's the the biggest problem we all i mean we're looking at some snow patches on the other side of the valley here at the moment that you know the, that high plateau uh, in years gone by would have been covered in snow for months and months at a time whereas now it's not it's much more erratic so so yeah things are changing but it's a fantastic habitat as i said unique in the UK um and we're we're privileged to have it on our doorstep.
0: You have the, the duty of looking after it, the task of looking after it, and one of the most significant things that you and the Trust has done in the last two decades is reducing the deer numbers. This is, this is quite a big deal. Tell me, tell me about that. Let, let's, have the, let's have the shorter version because it's a very long story, but, <laughs> but tell, me, tell me about that, what's happened and what, what effects it's had.
1: Yeah, so I guess the National Trust for Scotland bought the estate in 1995. We always had the um, ambition to restore the Caledonian pine wood um, by reducing deer numbers. Uh, they'd been allowed to during the Victorian times, in particular, deer numbers had been allowed to explode across this area, and um, deer were eating everything. It was a bowling green. So what we ended up with was, you know, two hundred, three hundred year old granny pine trees. Um, and absolutely nothing else. Underneath it was a bowling green, um, and the forest was dying. That was the reality. It was going to disappear altogether. It was contracting. Um, So we set about, uh, from 1995, starting to reduce deer numbers to try and allow the the woodland to recover. Um, It was a long, slow process. It was difficult. There's no getting away from that. Um, 2008, we really upped the effort on deer management, and from sort of... 2010, 2011, we started to see the results of that, and and some, you know, 10, 12 years later, uh, it's now exploding. I think that it's it's it, the woodland is now expanding at an exponential rate. We measure it every five years. We map in great detail the extent of the woodland, and we have over 2,000 hectares now of, of natural regeneration um, here on on the estate that. Was achieved through deer management and, and broadly
0: speaking, without the use of fences. So that's two thousand hectares. You've obviously got a very large area of of, uh, of alpine ground where you wouldn't expect tree growth, but you've also got other areas where you're not, you haven't got so much tree regeneration. So what's going on there?
1: Yeah. So the um, out in the west of the estate, south and west of the estate in particular, there's um, large areas where the seed sources disappeared altogether there are there are no trees um whatsoever and uh those those areas are more challenging in some respects a because of their remoteness but also because of land use around them uh, and neighbours' objectives which mean higher deer numbers um uh, o- over the last few years there is there's become an a a degree of urgency however to, to deal with some of the, the habitats out there. Um, river temperatures are rising which are threatening iconic species like the, the Atlantic salmon. Um, capercaillie, which are doing they're just about holding their own on the other side of the Cairngorms over on Speyside but there's virtually none left here on D side. And um, the only way they're going to be able to spread is if we create connectivity corridors, woodland connectivity corridors that link river catchments. Um, so and and obviously more trees, more biomass uh, overall is uh, helping to tackle the, the climate emergency that we hear so much about. So uh, in these western part of the estate, the western parts of the estate, we've we've had to think long and hard about it, but we are intervening um, in these areas now. Uh, particularly along those riparian corridors, so along the sides of the rivers, um, the Geldy Burn, etc. Uh, so in those areas, we are planting planting trees, and we are having to protect them. So we are using fencing, um, which we see as a, a pragmatic approach, really. Uh, in a within a two hundred year vision, you know, a thirty year intervention with fencing is is relatively short term, and I guess we just have to decide. What is more important right now is it dealing with biodiversity and climate emergencies, trying to save species like the Atlantic salmon and the Capercaillie, and are we prepared to make some of these compromises, like use use of fencing, to achieve that? And and I think we've decided, um, at least in some cases, you know fencing isn't our favoured way to go, but in some cases it's right to be pragmatic and and try and get some woodland away in these areas. When
0: you started your deer reduction, there were dire warnings from stalkers on neighbouring estates that they would be really badly impacted because you would kind of create a vacuum here, you'd suck all their deer in, you'd then have high deer numbers again, you'd shoot all those deer, it would suck more deer in, and eventually the entire Cairngorms would be, would be deerless. <laughs> Has that happened? Um. No is the very short answer the slightly
1: longer more convoluted answer is that you know you mentioned vacuum effect there, there is a vacuum effect we can't get away from that um, we create lots of really nice habitat for deer um, they, they're, they're naturally a woodland animal, that's where they want to be so the more woodland we create the more deer are going to want to come and, um, come and visit us but obviously that um, creates that creates problems so the approach to deer management we've taken here um, we have a a population target that we aim to maintain so it's certainly not about eradicating deer we actually have about 1600 deer on the estate in total and we try and manage to that that number but as well as just culling what we try to achieve is just constant ongoing disturbance so um, yes that does involve culling numbers of deer but almost certainly more important than that is just keeping the deer on their toes so they know they're not welcome in these woodland areas uh, so our stalkers are out there every day just creating disturbance, uh, making sure the deer know that they're not welcome here. That's helpful because it allows us to achieve our management objectives without impacting so much our, our neighbouring estates. And despite all the controversy in the past now, we have a really open, um, helpful working relationship with uh, with most of our neighbours. We're part of partnerships like the Eastern Cairngorms Moorland Partnership, where where we all come together and work together. The deer management group locally works really well. There have been impacts on our neighbours, but not the dire impacts that um, were predicted by some. And actually everybody is managing to maintain their... Sporting calls meet their own objectives. Deer are healthier, actually. You know, average weights have gone up, si- uh, the size of beasts have gone up, as the a smaller deer population is generally a healthier population, and we've certainly see, we see that in the data, the larger data that comes back in, bigger, heavier, healthier stags. Very little natural mortality out in the hill. You know, if we get a hard winter, um, there's there's fewer deer dying because they're in better condition going into the winter. So. So, yeah, on the whole, we seem to have managed to find what I hope is a, a reasonable balance between, between all those different objectives.
0: You mentioned the, the, the different weights of the deer. I've seen a woodland deer hanging up next to a moorland deer in a deer yeah. larder, and maybe 20% difference in size. It is quite
1: startling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. But I think what we've seen, so the deer here are... Are neither probably, but what we've seen—they're—they're they're basically all hill deer, and um, they're all moorland deer. But um, because there's fewer of them, the the average weights have gone up, and it's just—it's been a slow, steady increase over years. You see those average weights increasing. You have to be uh, have to be sharp, though. You've got to be on the, your toes because the other thing that happens is that um, the uh, the calving rates go up as well. The, the female deer are healthier and produce more babies. Um, so the risk is that the population just continues to grow and continues to grow. So you have to keep a really careful careful eye on it and make sure that you are constantly keeping on top of top of numbers. But um, but yeah it's it's just about trying to find that
0: balance. And in terms of employment on Mar Lodge and stalker numbers on Mar Lodge, you haven't seen any job losses. No, there's been no losses um,
1: numbers of stockers are basically the same as they were um, you know 30 years ago when it was a private estate um, the as an estate overall Mar Lodge has diversified we we do many many more things now than than when it was just a uh, when it was being run purely as a private estate uh, so our accommodation business our hospitality uh, functions and events business has grown massively um, we employ rangers to look after people. You know, we started talking about the the high hills and um, and but we also have visitor hotspots like the Lin of Dee and the Lin of Koy, which attract thousands of visitors every year. And we employ rangers to look after those people uh, and make sure those those places are looked after and they look after the people. Um, the, we employ ecologists, you know, all all sorts of dis, different people. So, I think in numbers terms, the the permanent staff complement at Mar Lodge thirty years ago was about sixteen staff, and um, we have twenty one permanent year round employees um, uh, on our on our books today, and many many more seasonal staff on top of that. So, so yeah, overall the employment mix has changed, but the stocking component of that has remained static and overall we've increased employment numbers so i'd argue that what we do is is good for um good for the local economy good for jobs um and actually keeps places like bremar ticking over and going and you have
0: retained the traditional paid for stalking with taking out clients
1: yeah absolutely um there's kind of a complicated story behind that but um but yeah we we aim to let about 100 sporting stags a year which is quite a big number um you know if you look at what what other estates let it's it's quite a big commercial um stocking enterprise uh, and we do that really successfully we have a target you know we let about 100 days um and we expect our uh, uh, return on that to be 80 to 100 sporting stags. And we, we've never failed to meet that. We've always delivered that sporting cull. And it provides really, really important income for the estate. How much does a day st- stalking a stag cost here? Um, it's about £700 for a day, £750, something like that. So, yeah, it's, um, it's not a cheap day out. But when you consider what goes into that, um I think it's it's fairly reasonable, and I think deer management for us overall is still a is overall is a cost um We managed to offset a fair chunk of that cost through our let stocking and venison sales. Venison's a fantastic product, and all our venison here goes into the food chain, goes to supermarkets, goes to game through game dealers to restaurants, hotels and things so um and all of that generates income.
0: You're listening to the Windswept and Interesting podcast. Would David like to organise a cull of tourists? Stay listening to find out. We'll be back in one minute. So that's dealt with the deer management side of things, which has been very, very important here. But uh, Mar Lodge isn't just about deer management. You've got an awful lot of other things. You look after the accommodation. You look after all sorts of other things. But in the outdoors side of things, peat restoration has become a very big deal here, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We are currently two years into a four year planned, initial four years of work um, that we plan to do. So uh, we're doing about two million pounds worth of peatland restoration work over the course of those four years. And that's a mixture of uh, blocking drains uh, through to dealing with peat hags and micro erosion and some really big erosion gullies that have developed over over years and years and years. So primarily that's about locking up carbon and um, helping fight the battle against climate change. But uh, already from the work that we've done, we can see it's bringing huge benefits in terms of biodiversity. The range of invertebrates, plants, etc., that are using those sites, anecdotally, is already growing. And... Uh, we're just starting a, a sort of detailed monitoring program to look at that now as well, so um, so that we can quantify some of these benefits. The peatland restoration is great. Everybody that's involved in land management in the uplands um, seems to be able to coalesce around it, which is quite unusual. We always seem to like to disagree about things, um, but yeah, all, land land managers from across the spectrum, be it private, states, conservation-oriented estates, whatever, everybody is called. Co- can coalesce around peatland restoration it seems to be a really positive thing to do
0: and it has benefits for, for, for all sorts of wildlife
1: what we're already noticing I guess is that um, the, the, there's you know, lots of talk about management of grouse moors, um, let's go there shall we <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, if, if you want to <laughs> um, but you know grouse is more and more difficult we're seeing um, black grouse for example obviously they, do, they they're not a we don't shoot black grouse in our lodge at all there and they are generally in decline they're really struggling and that's probably climate change related but red grouse are in trouble as well quite frankly um you know there hasn't been a really good grouse season in the highlands of scotland since about 2017 um all sorts of reasons for that but elsewhere you you also have problems with heather beetle and what have you but when you restore the peatlands what's really obvious is the di- diversity diversity of plant life and insect life um just really quickly expands it explodes and and all of these things provide alternative foodstuffs for birds like grouse so if your moorland does affect a you know an attack of heather beetle or something um wiping out what's thought of as the primary food source for grouse you do some peatland restoration work and you've got a whole load of alternatives there so um yeah and then wading birds out on the moorlands as well so you know dunlun and golden plover and all these species we're already seeing marked increases in their numbers in the areas of moorland where we've we've carried out
0: peatland restoration so a whole host of benefits from carrying out that work really and the peatland restoration explains what a lot of hill walkers will have seen and wondered at which is a couple of dirty great diggers out in miles from anywhere
1: yeah absolutely uh, and uh, it's quite skilled work one of the biggest issues um, in in scaling up peatland restoration in Scotland has been the availability of contractors to do it because it's well as you've seen clearly there it involves use of quite heavy machinery um, but it's not anybody that can kind of jump in a digger and do that kind of work it's really really skilled use of, uh, of machinery um, and without doubt over recent years the the, you know, the availability of those skilled contractors
0: has limited the amount of, of work that can be done. So anybody who fancies a bit of peatland restoration work should get themselves on a course?
1: Absolutely, yeah, and growing the contractor market is, is a really important part of what we collectively need to do to ensure that we can tackle across Scotland you know, all the peatland restoration work that needs to be done because uh, there's lots of it. There's, you know, we
0: could be at this for quite a long time, <laughs> quite, a few, <laughs> quite a few hundred years, I suspect. So, dear Pete, um, you were talking to me earlier on about willow.
1: Yeah, so we have, um, again, as a result of overgrazing really for centuries, there are um, species of really rare mountain willows. That have almost become extinct in Scotland, Um, and we have some very small fragment, remnant fragments, very often individual plants in very remote quarries, which in some cases they're literally the last, you know, last surviving um, plants of these rare willow species. And uh, yes, so for the last few years we've been taking cuttings and things. Another important thing to say about those individual plants is they're genetic clones very often so there's no chance of them recovering naturally and the population expanding even though we've reduced the deer pressure it's not going to fix they're not going to fix themselves so we've been taking cuttings and and mixing up genetic material not just from our lodge but from from other estates as well actually and growing that on in nurseries and then planting it back out to sort of reinforce the natural population's basically to try and save these really rare willow species and ensure that they remain a component in the uplands of Scotland. Um, they're also part of a much uh, broader range of plants that we, we refer to them as montane scrub plants, but it's sort of a natural range of of, of woodland, scrubby woodland, small, smaller plants but that extends from the the top of the traditional woodland, if you like, the the, per, the birch and the pine, and extends uphill from there before you get into the very high plateau. And again, montane woodland has almost become extinct in Scotland. There's very little of it exists, um, but we're starting to see it recover here and, and in a few other places, uh, particularly in the Cairngorms, working hard to, to restore that natural montane woodland. We we always take the approach here at Mar Lodge. Intervention in anything is really a last resort. We 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 would prefer to see a a state where natural processes were led by natural processes, if you like. But but sometimes the damage we've done as humans is just so great that we kind of really need to intervene to to undo some of that damage before it's too late. So yeah, not, there's a presumption against intervening anywhere, but. But when we have to, we will. Again, it's that sort of pragmatic approach um, to to save things if we need
0: to. There is another large mammal that you have to manage on the estate. It usually comes dressed in Gore-Tex <laughs> and with an ice axe or walking <laughs> poles or whatever. You can't cull them, although sometimes you might feel <laughs> that you that you'd like to. Um, but how big a problem has that been? I've seen all over Scotland, especially post-pandemic. Um, big upsurge in people using the outdoors has that been happening here
1: yeah i mean we've seen a massive upsurge really huge and has that been challenging yes it's been challenging i think it's fantastic though at the end of the day we the national trust for scotland exists to um, in our sort of founding charter as well as protect and conserve um, the words educate inform and and welcome people to to the outdoors all of those things are specifically mentioned so actually it's part of our job to to look after people uh, and to help them understand what we do here so to see the explosion in numbers has actually in many ways been a good thing as I say it it does present some challenges and our ranger team here have worked incredibly hard um, over the last two three years um, to ensure that all those hundreds of thousands of people that do come and visit us can do so in such a way that doesn't impact the habitat and the environment that we've got um, and just help them to really enjoy it and make the most of it and I think um, that that's that's the secret really the more people understand the more generally when people understand what it is we're trying to do and how special the environment is they're more than happy to help help us protect it and that's really what you know, where we need to get to. So rather than seeing hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people as being a problem, view it as an opportunity um, to help uh, help people understand what it is we're doing and hopefully they'll
0: support us in our efforts. It is obviously great to see more people in the outdoors and perhaps some people you wouldn't expect, people from minorities and that sort of thing. But there are problems. There have been problems with dirty camping that sort of thing, that must impinge on the estate and that must be a headache for you.
1: Yeah, well, yes, I can't, can't deny that, it is. But actually, I, I, I take some comfort in the fact that not just ourselves, but, you know, here in the Cairngorms in particular, the National Park Authority, together with neighbouring landowners, has run a huge campaign over the last um, couple of years post-pandemic to help educate and inform. And I think we have seen a number of significant issues dropping off. Um, there's less of it now so the message does seem to to be getting through the messy camping isn't pleasant um, but the more we can get the message out there that what we're trying to do is is protect this this area then so much the better and the the rangers job is to do that by by engaging so Um, You know, weekends during the summer, we have a team of three or four rangers out most evenings and they will go and actively engage face to face with groups of campers. Um, Those that are behaving perfectly and just go and have a chat and offer any help or advice. And, you know, where are you going tomorrow? Which route are you taking up such and such a mountain? And, and yes, if there's a group that are behaving irresponsibly, they'll they'll go and help them to understand how they can be more responsible, and and that's part of our job. So in the nicest possible. Yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. We invest a lot. It costs us a lot. We spend a lot of money looking after, um, helping people to understand and, and looking after the environment. But ultimately, I think that's worth doing. And it's part of the national trust. Yeah, exactly. It's job. it's why we're here, and in fact, Mar Lodge Estates specifically when it was acquired um, there was a fear at the time of acquisition that it could go to another private landowner it was that was before the days of the Scottish Outdoor Access Code and um, the Land Reform Act and um, there was a genuine fear that a private landowner could just slam the door and say you're not welcome here. Uh, So specifically one of our remits was to um, to ensure that freedom of access to to some of the the best hills in in Scotland, really.
0: So no visitor call yet, then?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not. And uh, yeah, we I, I, again actually we're investing in new facilities as as well at the moment. We're um, currently got a couple of small projects, the Glen that we were up earlier on up at Glencoich. We're looking at putting some some interpretation down at the bottom of that Glen because it's become busier and busier. Again, earlier on today we saw some amazing things up in the Glen. You know, we saw that eagle up and about and what have you. People are genuinely blown away very often when they come here, especially if they're not used to seeing, to being in this type of environment. It is really quite special. The more we can encourage people to come and understand what it's all about, hopefully enjoy it,
0: and, and then help us to protect it in the future. Thanks for listening, and remember you can review subscribe or send me suggestions my twitter handle is at scott nature core